God's love, God's faithfulness, those are themes we're going to see today as we go into the book of Psalms. We're going to be in chapter 48. So the question is, probably on some of your minds, okay, last Sunday we were in Luke 24. We finished up that great book. I hope you enjoyed the trip through the book of Luke. I sure did. Um, But now we're in the Old Testament. Again, I want you to know that Old, New Testament really doesn't matter. It's God's Word. And that's the way I look at it. It's a story of God. Yeah, there are differences, absolutely. And sometimes it's more difficult to preach from the Old Testament. We have to do a little bit more research there to understand the culture and what's, what's really going on. But the reality is it's God's story. So that's just, but why Psalm 48? If you don't know, um, it's something I started last summer. I meet with a group of pastors and they started at Psalm 1 a few summers back. And what we do is preach consecutively through the Psalms each summer. So each summer, we break out of our norm. We go to that wonderful book is the book of Psalms because the reality is 150 chapters long. We could never do justice to it, I don't think, in a series all at one time necessarily. But why not take summers and preach from Psalms? So I meet with a group of pastors weekly. And let me just say, um, this sermon, this same passage is being preached on in Estacada, in Barton, in Gladstone, in Wilsonville, in, I, I'm missing some place, in Clackamas here, and in West Lynn. How's that? It's pretty exciting to know that. Now, it's going to look differently as each of those guys preach it, um, and we all come at it from a little different flavor. And what I love is as we meet and we talk about this great chapter together, I'm always amazed at how how much broader it gets. Because I study Psalm 48 and I see certain things and then I come together with all the rest of them and I'm like, wow, I didn't see that. Or I missed that part. Or what a great illustration. Um, And it's just wonderful. So anyway, Psalm 48 just happens to be where we're starting up this summer and we'll just go consecutive through Psalm 61 at the end of August. So that's where we're going. Um, At the title of your psalm, in some of your Bibles, it makes a little note above, and it says, on mine, it says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? What is that? I thought David wrote all the psalms. Well, no, he didn't. Um, The sons of Korah wrote about 11 of them, actually, and there's a series starting in Psalm 42, going through Psalm 49, that are all written by the sons of Korah. Um, Who are the sons of Korah? Korah was one of the Levitical musicians placed in charge of temple music by David and Solomon. So it was in that era when the temple was built where people would come to worship where music would be sung that he was one of and then the sons of Korah, uh, the heritage there of temple musicians. And so we have recorded for us in scripture some of their songs that would be used as part of temple worship by the people of Israel. It's a beautiful psalm that we're gonna see today. It's also a song of Zion. Now I'm gonna explain Zion in a little bit, but I wanna ask you a question first. What is your favorite city and maybe why? Just think about that a little bit. What is your favorite city and why is it your favorite? I think there's probably one of two reasons why it's your favorite. Number one, It's beautiful. It's a place where you go and you're just kind of blown away by the beauty of the place. For me, that's Bend, Oregon. I love Bend. I've been to other places in Europe, 
probably should put some more on my list because Portugal is Lisbon, unbelievable. I know the team gets to go here in a couple weeks. One of my favorites too. But for me, Bend is a beautiful place because of the beauty of the mountains of Three Sisters and the river that it shoots and everything. It's just amazing. So that's one reason, I think, maybe why that town would be your favorite. But I think maybe a second reason would be memories. Or, man, we went there and we had such a great time. So it becomes your favorite place because of the good memories maybe that you have of the place. So for me, that place would be Anaheim, California. (laughs) Why? Because Anaheim's beautiful? No. If you've been to Anaheim, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's not necessarily, although I don't want to diss Anaheim. Sorry. If you're from there, I'm sorry. It has its beauty. But the thing that makes it wonderful in my eyes and probably in some of yours is, is Disneyland, of course, where many times as a family we've gone with friends and just had wonderful times. And so I think of it in very fond terms. For the sons of Korah, for people living who are Israelites in this period of time, when you said, what is the most amazing city in the world? What is a city that just has incredible meaning in your life, it would have been Zion or Jerusalem. That's really what they're talking about. The city of Jerusalem was very special to them. The name Zion literally means fortification. That's literally what the word means. And it goes back into Old Testament times, back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, where David captures a Jebusite fortress within the city of Jerusalem. And he captured it and took it as Israel's possession, the city of Zion, and it became Jerusalem. It's all part of the city there. He built a citadel and a royal palace there, and it became known as the city of David. That's where he was. Later on, Solomon built a temple there, and it became a place of worship. So it represented to them the place where the king resided. It was the place where God resided in his temple. Incredibly important. So when they sing about Zion and the importance of the city to them, that's why, why they would sing about that. And as we're going to see later, the, the term Zion, as we take it through Scripture, it kind of expands in its meaning and its, and its relevance to later on it becomes this idea of the people of God. We, as Christians, we as the church now, are this beautiful city. And then in the end, in the book of Revelation, we're going to get there, but we see the holy city, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And it's the idea that God is with his people. That's really what it's getting to. It's about relationship. It's not necessarily about a geographical location. It becomes a relationship with God being amongst his people for all eternity. That's why Jerusalem is so important. So in this psalm, they're going to sing about this city, and so I wanted to bring that out, and it's like, why are they praising a city? It seems kind of odd to us, but to them, it had a huge meaning. Today, we're going to see that when we're aware of God's presence and his protection in our life, it brings about joy and confidence in our lives. When we see God's presence and his protection, we're going to be, it's going to bring joy and confidence in our lives. So let's look at Psalm 48, first three verses first. And he's going to describe this great city to us. Great is the Lord and greatly most worthy of praise. 
in the city of our God and his holy mountain, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. Wow, what a description of an incredibly beautiful place. Psalm 48 begins and ends with praise, as psalms do, and that we're gonna see that pattern as we go through, and we saw that last summer. It begins and ends with praise because it's always about lifting God up. And I love how it starts out. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. You know, the praise of God's people is not built upon music. It's not built upon emotion, although those are part of it. It's not built upon the musicians or me or anyone else getting you excited about something. It's being aware of who God is. Look what it says. Great is the Lord. And, guess what? Because of that, because of his greatness and who he is, he's most worthy of our praise. I don't have to drum anything up here. I just have to understand really who God is in my life. Our thoughts about God shape our praise. Our thoughts about God shape us. Think about that a little bit as we move through this passage. It's so important to keep... Keep that in our mind. He speaks of some characteristics of this great city, Zion. Again, when they thought of Zion in their mind, it was the security, the provision, the presence of the Lord. All those things kind of rolled into one. And look at some of the things that he points out. First of all, he says it's the city of our God. It's where God dwells. In their time, it was. Very literally, God's dwelling was in his temple, that's where it was. The temple was there. This is the city of our gods where he's chosen to reside here on this earth back then. It's the mountain of his holiness. You know, for the Israelites, there was a Mount Sinai. That's where they met God originally. That's where Moses met God first. And then as they made their way to the promised land out of Egypt, they stopped at the base of that mountain and they got the law from God. But there was a sense in those days of fear, trembling, the ground shook. There was fear that they couldn't approach the mountain. This is a mountain now, Mount Zion. It's a little bit different. The presence, the holiness of God is still there. But the people are encouraged to come. God's holiness now, they can come to God at Mount Zion, it's the mountain of his holiness. It's beautiful in its loftiness. Mount Zion, geographically, not the tallest of mountains, in, even in Israel. If you go north, Mount Hermon has snow on it. It's much taller, there's mountains up north in Lebanon, right John, that are taller than Mount Zion there in Jerusalem. So why the big deal about its height, its loftiness, what's going on there? Well, it's really talking about this idea of importance. It is exalted. It is above. And if you approach Jerusalem geographically, you had to go up to Jerusalem. It was on a mount. And so people coming to worship at the temple, they would speak of going up to the temple, the loftiness, this idea. It's the most important place. 
That's what it's talking about. It's, it's almost the idea where heaven and earth touch in their minds. It's lofty. It's the joy of the whole earth. Hmm, that's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Because I have a feeling that the Philistines probably weren't real excited about it. Um, <laughs> the people of Moab, east, probably not so excited about Jerusalem. Why does he say it's the joy of the whole earth? I mean, yes, the joy of Jerusalem, it's the joy of the Israelite people for sure. But I think in this statement there's this idea of, it's a reference to the future, to the millennial reign, to what God has in store for his people down the road. And the reason I say that is because Isaiah did. In Isaiah chapter two, verse two, this is what he said. He said, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Hmm, again, elevation-wise, not necessarily, it's not that tall. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations are gonna stream to it. It's this picture of people from all over the world coming to this place. Not now, but future. So this idea that it's the joy of the whole earth. People are excited to be there. Then, depending on your translation, the NIV kind of takes it a little different direction. And if you know the chorus, when I started reading this, did your mind go to the chorus? Great is the Lord. And great, no, sorry, I won't, I won't sing it for you. Did, it, did your mind automatically kind of jump there? In the chorus and in the different translations, there's different ways of saying this. Some of the translations, ESV and New American, for example, go with in the far north. And in the chorus, it has that, this idea the NIV takes it and translates it, and there's a lot of discussion, scholarly discussion on why they went this direction, but they took it like, and phrased it like the heights of Zaphon. What is that? Well, Zaphon was a mountain to the north of Jerusalem. It was actually northeast of Jerusalem. It's where the pagan gods would be worshiped. It's where the Canaanite gods were worshiped. And so there's kind of this idea that at Jerusalem, at Mount Zion, it's where the real God is worshiped in real truth, not these false gods. And so it's, it's, it's a point of comparison a little bit, I believe. But it's just kind of an interesting, as we met as pastors, we discussed what's, all, what's up with the Zaphon thing and the north, and nobody could really, had really a great answer. We all kind of said, well, this is what some of the scholars think. But it has kind of that idea that this is the place where the true God is worshiped. And then it says it's the city of the great king. Jesus references this verse in Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 34 and 35. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool. God owns, God owns it all. Up there, heaven, earth, down here or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Jerusalem was held in such high regard by the people, even in Jesus' day, that oftentimes they would swear by it. They would use it as a, okay God, I'm gonna keep my word, and if you don't believe me, I'll swear by Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was, it was a very high regard. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't use heaven, don't use the earth, don't use Jerusalem for your oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
first and foremost. But I like how Jesus references this quote. It's the idea, it's the city of the great king. It's, it was originally the city of David. Now it's the city of the great king. And as Luke, we saw the king coming into a city, the triumphal entry, right? Here's the Messiah. Here's the great king. So Jesus is speaking about, this is my city. Um, and one day, you're gonna see that very soon. Verse three, God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. Behind the city of Jerusalem was this reality of God. His presence, his protection. Citadels are fortresses that were built up above, on higher ground, protecting or dominating a city. So that's God in our lives. He's there, he's protecting us. Nothing can take him by surprise. That's who he is. Isn't that a wonderful way of remembering? And by looking at the city of Jerusalem, they were reminded of God's power, his presence, and his protection. But Jerusalem meant something different to the enemies of Israel. Look what verses four to seven say. He says, when the kings, not the Israelite kings, but the foreign kings, when they joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her, they were astounded, they fled in terror. A completely different response, right? You get that sense? Trembling seized them there, pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. Wow, okay, this is a whole different reference now. When the enemies of Israel saw Jerusalem, they saw something completely different. The image was fear and destruction and pain. You get that in these verses here. Kings joining forces and advancing together. In Psalm chapter two, there's this picture that David talks about. I just wanted to show this because it's very similar. In fact, when I read this, it's like, that's Psalm two, but here it is. The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers they band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven, is he afraid? No. You get a sense, this is God Almighty, he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, he rebukes them in his anger, he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So there's this picture of all these kings gathering their forces together to come and fight against this great city. And David mentions that in Psalm 2, and he says, you know, this is God. He just laughs. It's silly to him. This is ridiculous. You can't do that. There's kind of a word play in, in Hebrew here. The word advance, that verb advance, it means to transgress. The idea of breaking a law or a king's command to sin. It's kind of like the psalmist is saying when these kings get together and they plan their attack, they're sinning. They're transgressing. So there's kind of this wordplay that goes on there. Verse five, there was Caesar's great quote, you know, when he fought up there in Gaul, and he, he says, I came, I saw, I conquered, right? Have you heard that one? It's kind of a famous literary quote. Look what verse five says. It's kind of similar but very different. Verse five is, they came, they saw, and guess what? They got out of town. They fled, right? They didn't conquer anything. They took off running for fear because they see God. 
And then verse 6 brings in pain. It's like childbirth pain to them. It's a fearful thing. It's a painful thing to see God. You know, it's interesting to me when people, when we think of God, we have our emotions and thoughts attached to him. But if you talk to other people who don't know God, you're going to probably get some different emotions, right? For some people, it's a fearful thing. For some people, it's a painful thing. So it isn't, it's very different depending on your relationship with him, but that's what's going on here. Verse 7 mentions the ships of Tarshish. What is going on there? These were famous. These ships were the largest ones for commercial shipping in those days. Uh, They were the pride and the glory of the seafaring nations, such as Phoenicia, up north of Israel. They would travel across the Mediterranean Sea, and there's a lot of debate scholarly as to where they would go, but a lot of scholars believe that there was a place in southwest Spain near the entrance from the Atlantic Ocean into the Mediterranean by Gibraltar, which is a pretty cool place. Got to visit there one time, but kind of in that area of the world where they would travel all the way across the Mediterranean, bring back gold, silver, precious stones, things like that, different spices, back to the area around Israel on the other coast on the opposite side of the Mediterranean Sea. So it was this idea of all these goods and all of these things coming from a far land. Think of the book of Jonah. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, okay? Northeast, right? It was the Assyrian capital, wicked people. Jonah said, great, I'll go, no problem. No, he jumped on a boat, a ship going to Tarshish. Guess what? Geographically, you can't go any further, probably in the opposite direction. Basically, what it's saying in Jonah 1 there is he took a ship going for the furthest reaches of the earth, trying to flee. It says he's fleeing from the presence of God. He thinks he can outflee God. Guess what? That, that's not going to work. Well, in Ezekiel, there's a prophecy against Tyre. It was a capital city north of Israel, Phoenician. And there's a prophecy and a judgment that God is going to punish them. And look what it says in Ezekiel 27, verse 25 and 27. It says, The ships of Tarshish serve as carriers for your wares. You're dependent upon them, they're important to you. You're filled with heavy cargo as you sail the sea. Your oarsmen take you out to high seas, but the east wind will break you to pieces far out at sea. Your wealth, your merchandise, wares, your mariners, your sailors, your shipwrights, your merchants, and all your soldiers, everyone else on board will sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your shipwreck. Wow. So there's a prophecy against Tyre where this actually occurred and where God stirred up this storm and took a ship down to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. I find it amazing that God can calm storms, right? That's the story of his disciples in the boat with him. And he can stir up a storm just as easy. He did it in the book of Jonah as his tool to get Jonah's attention. He can do it against those who are against him. So the ships of Tarshish, All the things that you're depending upon, people, are going to be dashed and sink to the bottom of the sea because I am God. But then it turns back around. Look at verses 8 through 11. 
As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. Isn't that beautiful? And in some of your Bibles, in some of your translations, there's Selah. There's a pause. There's an interlude kind of over to the side. Do you see that? Some of your Bibles. The NIV doesn't put it there, but it's there. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Isn't that beautiful? Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. So he talks about the fear on the enemies of God. Now he turns it back around and says to the people of God, it's gonna fill their hearts with praise. It's gonna mean something very special. And I love in verse eight it says, as we have heard, so we have seen. This praise of God's people, it's continuous, it's ongoing. We heard about it, now we see it. It was history, now it's reality and present. It was something I believe, now it's something I see. Faith becoming sight. This whole idea, it's, it's, I know it's true because I've heard about it, but now I know it's true because it happened in my life. You know, it's one thing to read God's word, and we, it's beautiful, but when you see it coming to play in your own life, it just adds to it. It's that beautiful thing. I know God's loving, okay? I know that's true. But then, in your life, you see him, and you experience his love firsthand, and you go, I get it. And it's just this powerful draw. The psalmist praises God for his protection. He says, Jerusalem's gonna be secure forever. Is that true? Was Jerusalem historically secure forever? Very much not <laughs> the case. In fact, not too far down the road, 586 BC, the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and the wall and they carried the people off into captivity. We know that story in the Old Testament. Then Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, it's his triumphal entry, what happens? He begins to weep because he sees the history of Jerusalem. 70 AD, the Romans, Emperor Titus, comes in and burns down the temple, not one stone left upon another, right? Jerusalem has not always been secure in that sense, for sure. It's been ravaged through the centuries. You know, the Middle Ages, right? Back and forth. It's been struggle. Even today, there's not real peace in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount um, is not, it's not Israel's. And so there's this ongoing struggle in this city. So this isn't gonna be true for all time, but it's the reality that God's there. His presence is there. And the idea of Selah, take a break now. Musical interlude, pause for reflection, and think about how God has brought about security in your life, how God is your fortress and your rock. Think about how God is with you. And I encourage you to do the same thing today. You know, sometimes in music we do that, right? Tim did a little music interlude on that last song, and it's beautiful, and it's just a chance to sit and think about the words that we had sang right before that and then to continue on. And that's what he's saying. 
And look at verses 9 through 11. There's this beautiful progression, starting with meditation in verse 9, thinking about, then moving on to praise in verse 10, and then in verse 11, it's rejoicing. Look at verse 9. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Meditate, we ponder, we unfailing love, it's important in the Hebrew word hesed. It's God's covenant, unconditional, promised, unfailing. There's different words that are used for it. Loving kindness, steadfast love, all of those are pointing to that beautiful word, hesed. That is God's love for his people, and we're gonna meditate on that. There's a couple verses in Psalm that are, I think are really beautiful. Psalm 26.3, same word, by the way, hesed, when it, in speaking of love here. Look what David says in Psalm 26.3. I have always been mindful of your hesed, of your unfailing love. I have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. Isn't that beautiful? God, your love doesn't come and go. It's faithful. Look at Psalm 92.2. I love this one. It's a pattern for me. Proclaiming your hesed, your love, in the morning. It's fresh. It's new. I'm getting up. I'm thinking about it to start my day. And your faithfulness at night. It's bookends in my life. I get up and I think about how much you love me. And I go to bed at night thinking about how faithful you are to me because you've been with me throughout the day. What a pattern for you and me. Right? If you think about it, it doesn't get any better than that. What better thing could I do in the morning? Get up and think about how much God loves me and then go to bed at night praising him for his faithfulness as I've seen it worked out. I think in our lives we would benefit greatly from that. I think we would grow in our faith. I think we would begin to get beyond maybe some of the struggles that we have. But again, it's just that beautiful pattern. This idea of hesed has two words kind of connected to it. One is covenant. God has made a promise, he's made a covenant, and he will not go back on his word, he is faithful to it. So it has the idea of loyalty, of faithfulness, of promise tied into that beautiful word, but it also has the word grace tagged into it. It's an undeserved, unmerited love. You can't earn this. It's never about earning God's love, by the way. We know that. It's about God's grace. The fact that he reaches out to you and me. He's the one who initiates it. It's his covenant, loyal, unfailing love. It's not merely love, it's loyal love. It's not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. It's not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself to us. Wow, that's just a deeper sort of a love than we experience a lot of times in our life. And it's based on his grace, it's a gift. While we were still sinners, he died for us, right? Romans 5, 8. Then verse 10 talks about praise for God's righteousness. I'm gonna praise God because of his righteousness. Your name, O God, and your praise goes to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is just filled with righteousness. That is just, that's who you are, it's your character. Lord, you're not capricious, but you're always right and you're always just. That's who you are. You do what's right, your righteousness. And then verse 11, rejoicing for God's judgments. Consider well, or sorry, 
Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. So the psalmist has been praising God because of his great city, Zion. Now it's about God's character, his attributes, who he is. Think about this for a second. This is the gospel, these three qualities, and let me explain what I mean by that. God's hesed love, his grace, for me is where it all starts. It isn't because I love God first, but because God loved me first. We're told that in scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only. We love him because he first loved us. That's his hesed love that reached out to you and me. That's his grace. When I respond to his grace, I am in Christ. I am righteous. I take on God's righteousness. That's the second quality of God here in verse 10. It starts with God's grace and receiving God's free gift of grace. Then I take on in Christ, I am righteous in him. That's the book of Romans. We went through that, right? And then judgment and justice When I am in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no judgment. There is for the wicked. God is just. That's one of his qualities. There's fear, there should be fear there because there is judgment for those who turn their back on God. But if I'm in Christ, I'm his child, there's no condemnation. So all three of those qualities of God, his hesed, his love for me is there in the gospel. His righteousness, I take that on because I'm in Christ. And then because of that, because I'm righteous in God's eyes, I'm no longer guilty. There's no condemnation. That's the gospel right there. Verse 12 to 14 go on and talk about the confidence. We can be joyful in knowing who God is and the truth of God, but we can also have confidence. Look what it says in verse verse 12. It says, Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Wow. When we know God, when we know of his presence and his protection in our life, we can have great joy but we can also have great confidence. We can be confident in his protection. He says, walk about Jerusalem. When I heard the word walk about, the first thing that came to my kind of weird mind, and some of you probably, maybe, when you hear the word walk about, back in the 80s, Crocodile Dundee, it was a walkabout, right? There in Australia, he did a walkabout. He wanted to check things out. The psalmist, the writer here is saying, I want you to walk around Jerusalem, but I want you to see it with new eyes. And I want you to look at those structures that are still standing, structures of defense, citadels. I want you to look at the ramparts. I want you to look at the towers and remember God's protection and how he's there and he's kept you safe all these years. That's just a beautiful way of remembering God And then I want you to do something very important. I want you to talk about that with the next generation. If there's anything that's important for us in Christian community, and I take this on as grandparent now and as parent, is passing it on to the next generation. You know, this culture is not a good guide 
for our kids. Is that fair to say? I mean, I was just talking with a parent the other day and we were kind of going, what is going on? We were looking around at our world and going, what kind of a world is this for our kids and our grandkids? And I just said to him, I said, you know what that tells me is as a parent, I gotta take very seriously, I gotta teach my kids, I gotta speak of God's faithfulness and God's truth to my kids. I gotta pass it on to that next generation because if I don't, the world's gonna sell them a whole package and it's a mess and it's the furthest thing from truth and it's not gonna be a benefit in their life. And so as a parent, I wanna take that very seriously. So there's confidence in posterity of passing it on. There's confidence in eternity. He says God is our God forever and not just forever, but ever. I like that. God is with us for all eternity and there's confidence in guidance. God is our guide even to the end. So here's the way it works is God is our guide. He's like our shepherd. Sound familiar? Psalm 23 and several other places. God is our guide unto death while we're here on this earth until we pass. He's our guide through death because we know because of the resurrection we will have life on the other side of death because of the truth of the resurrection. He is our guide beyond death, meaning we have a place for all eternity with him. Isn't that beautiful? To death, through death, beyond death. He's our guide. He's with us forever. We can have confidence knowing who God is. I mentioned earlier the city of Zion was a place, still is a place. You can go there today. I want to go there. It's on my bucket list to see Jerusalem. Haven't been there yet. But it's more than just a place. It's a people. In Hebrews 12, verse 22 and 23, the author brings this out. And he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. That's Psalm 48, isn't it? The heavenly Jerusalem. Hmm? What's going on there? Wait a minute, I thought it was an earthly. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's God's kingdom at work. It's his people coming to faith in him. It's a celebration that's gonna take place in eternity. This idea of Zion expands now greatly to include us, you and me. So when it says to walk about Jerusalem and consider, we're not talking about ramparts and towers and citadels and things like that. We're talking about lives. I can look at your lives, I can see in my own life how God has been at work, how God is faithful, and I can give him praise. I can do a walkabout, in a sense, a virtual tour, by just looking around this room and knowing some of you and your stories about how God has been with you and at work in your life, and you're a testimony to his love, to his righteousness, and to his acts of justice. And that's what it's talking about. It's moving us beyond just a place to God's broader plan his, this idea of a spiritual Israel. Revelation 21, 9 to 14, this is beautiful. This is where it starts ramping to an end. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues called and said to me, come, I'm gonna show you the bride, 
the wife of the Lamb. Who is the bride of Christ? Yeah. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high. Sounds familiar? We've been talking about that a little bit. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's part of God's kingdom, isn't it? Israel, his people, the 12 tribes. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's the New Testament church. The apostles, they're part of it. And we learn from scripture too that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, that everything's built upon. So this idea of this new Jerusalem It's bringing to mind what was a reality, a spiritual reality. And it talks about this new Jerusalem, there's no need for a temple. Why? Because the Spirit is already, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, are we not? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Guess what? This city doesn't need a temple either because God's there. He doesn't need a locale, a location. He's there and he will be for all eternity. It doesn't need a sun, moon, because it has light. It's called the holiness of God. That's gonna light the place for all eternity. And it's just this beautiful picture and how the story of God from Old Testament all the way through the end is the story of what God wants to do. It starts with Jerusalem. Back then it was beautiful. It meant something because it pictured God, but it means something to us today because it tells us of God's plan which is gonna be us, with him for all eternity in the new Jerusalem for his honor and glory. Phil is gonna come and lead us in communion. I wanna encourage you to think about and meditate on God's love. That's why we do this. It's one of the reasons why we do communion. The greatest reason is to meditate on God's hesed love for us, his covenant love, his loyal love. Amen.